Validating a child doesn't mean you're co-signing on a bad behavior, a bad choice, or somehow further instilling this as a belief system. You're just saying, hey, I see you, you're struggling. I don't agree with why you're struggling. I don't get why you're struggling, but I see you're struggling is going to work so much faster than stop struggling or why are you struggling? Welcome to the Beautifully Complex podcast, where I share insights and strategies on parenting neurodivergent kids straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Beautifully Complex podcast. Today, I am thrilled to be talking to Britt Frank, who is the author of The Science of Stuck. And we are going to talk all things stuckness, to make up a new word maybe, and how that relates both to the struggles that we see in our kids, but also in ourselves as adults and in our own parenting. And just that journey in and of itself can often raise these times where we just get bogged down with the negativity and the hard stuff. And so I'm so excited to have this conversation with Britt and to really give you guys some tools to help you to figure out how to get unstuck, right? So thanks for being here, Brett. Can you start by letting everyone know who you are and what you do? Yeah, and thanks so much for having me. So my name is Britt Frank, and I'm a trauma therapist, and I also had a play therapy practice. So when I was uh, early in my career, I started with child development and kids and figuring out how kids do humaning. I'm a recovering hot mess myself, so mm. not that kids are hot messes, but I was. And, uh, you know, drug addiction, relational dysfunction, just a whole host of things. And somehow I managed to cobble together recovery, and uh, now I specialize in really the neuroscience of mental health and how we do and why we do. I'm not a neuroscientist by any stretch, but when we know just a few things about our brains and how attachment works and just some basic brain science 101, it's really amazing how much things can actually change for the better. Yeah, that understanding of kind of the interconnectedness of our biology and our feelings and our emotions and our behavior and all these things is so powerful. I want to start just by talking about what do we mean by being stuck? Mm. I love that question because stuck can mean so many different things for so many different people. For me, mm -hmm. stuck meant my mental health challenges. For parents, stuck could mean trying every single tool, trick, tip under the sun and it not working. Stuck could mean I feel like I'm crazy and I don't know why things are happening and there's no such thing as a crazy person. Stuck can feel like there's this giant gap between the things I know I'm supposed to do and the choices I'm actually making, what's wrong with me? So I don't use stuck in situations where there's abuse or oppression or you know a lack of choices, mm -hmm. but assuming that you have your basic needs met, assuming you have access to basic resources, stuck means I don't understand why this thing is happening, it must be me. And by and large, it isn't. Mm. Can you expand on that? Sure. And again, I liken it to driver's ed. You know, like you don't need to be an auto mechanic to drive your car. You just need to know enough to know where the things are so you can get around. Right. But if I put a six-year-old behind the wheel of a car, they're not going to know what to do. They're going to make a giant mess. And we don't blame the six-year-olds. We don't blame the car. We say, you know, developmentally, you don't have the skill level to drive. 
And for adults, we were never taught, hey, you have a brain and you have a central nervous system and here's the brain's brake and here's the brain's gas pedal. And so we're constantly driving off the road and blaming ourselves. And it's just not so. Again, if we know, hey, your brain does this when this kind of stress happens and procrastination is a stress response, it's not a moral failing. Again, we can take the shame off. We can't take the complexity of our lives away or the pain of our realities away, but we can certainly take the shame off and the confusion off, which makes a huge difference when you're feeling stuck. Yeah. And I feel like we are going toward a conversation about our autonomic nervous system (laughs) and maybe linking in polyvagal theory, which um, we know well here at Beautifully Complex and in the work that I do. And I'm just wondering, is that kind of the foundation for understanding our brains that you use as well? Yes. And I love polyvagal theory. And my problem with it, and I have no problem with Dr. Porges, he's amazing and brilliant, is that Mm. it's so hard to learn because it's so technical. And so in my book, I just created a cartoon playground. And it's like, okay, if your swing is swinging up and around the poles, like that's sympathetic overactivation. If you've fallen off the swing set and you're lying face down in the dirt, that's dorsal vagal shutdown. And so I'm really big on taking these very, very complex mechanical neurosciency jargon and making it accessible and understandable so we can actually implement it because polyvagal is genius, but it's not useful if we don't know how it works and practical ways to implement it. Yeah, yeah. The science of it can be very complicated and overwhelming and all the specific terms and learning them. And I love that you're simplifying it for people because I feel like for me, it explains so much when I learned Mm -hmm. about polyvagal theory and the autonomic nervous system and how it's sort of guiding the ship. Yes. (laughs) Right? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. And so when we understand that, my goodness, how much more do we understand ourselves or as parents, how much more do we understand what's going on with our kids? And I love your analogies for the different states of the nervous system. It's something that people can really visualize, right? Because that's what we need. We need to understand that if we're super activated, that's because our nervous system is activated, right? And our nervous system is in overdrive and it needs something. I always talk about, you know, the the different states of the nervous system are really signals, they're messages. Mm -hmm. What are they trying to tell us? Yes. And as a child, oh my God, if I could have learned at eight, at nine, at seven, at four, Mm. hey, this is what your brain is doing. I wouldn't have felt like such a crazy person. I wouldn't have felt like a bad kid. It's like, and when I did play therapy, you can teach this stuff in a very age appropriate way. Kids are so relieved when they're like, oh, my brain is doing a thing, which means I have choice power. And regardless of what a child is struggling with, anywhere they're aware of choices, they're going to be less dysregulated. And so, you know, let's make polyvagal appropriate and teach it to the kiddos too. You know, with colors, hey, do you feel red today? Red would be, you know, sympathetic overactivation or dark green, like slimy, sludgy green might be dorsal vagal. But like you can teach them, hey, when you feel like a big noodle that's all wet, that's green. When you feel like you're a volcano that's about to explode, that's red. And then instead of saying, hey, how was your day? Because most kids are like, I don't know. Ask them, what color are you today? Or what colors Mm, did you feel today? And there's so many beautiful ways of looping in the neuroscience to kids so that they understand what's going on. Yeah. What color are you today? I love that so much. 
That's a great conversation starter, too, to connect with our kids, which Mm -hmm. is also so important because we know that our nervous system is sort of firing on all cylinders. Everything's going really well when we're connected and when we're feeling that connection. Right. And what we know is, you know, when our nervous system is dysregulated, words are really tricky. I know very capable mm. grown-ups who can't find their words when they're dysregulated. Yeah. So for a child, cutting out different colored circles and when they can't talk, just have them put outside their door what colors they're feeling. And it's a great way to create more language besides words, which largely become unavailable when our neocortex goes offline. So let's like make our language and our words and our vocabulary bigger so that we have more tools to communicate. Because I know when I don't have words because I'm panicking or depressed or whatever, it feels really isolating and lonely. And for a child, they just think there's something wrong with me. And there isn't. Yeah. And I'm imagining that we can use this, what color are you today with even adolescents and young adults and oh they love it because they don't have to talk (laughs) right yeah put the color on your door I will not bother you Mm -hmm. we don't need to talk or see you yeah I love it I'm going to implement that right away that's amazing and for teenagers who are struggling with severe mental health challenges I get concerned parents want to make sure they're safe but as someone who's treated teens, it's really annoying for teens to be asked 20 times a day, are you safe, are you safe, are you safe? But if purple is your, I'm not in a great place, but I'm safe color, then you can just send a purple emoji or put purple on your door. And again, that's a nonverbal way of communicating, I'm safe, and that way the parent and child can connect without having to go through the, are you okay, what's going on? You know, you flinch. Does that mean this? Does that mean this? So let's simplify it. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up the feeling of safety because that's so important in this conversation when we're Mm -hmm. talking about our nervous system and why we feel certain ways. It really boils down to, do you feel safe or do you feel unsafe, right? And that's, of course, part of polyvagal theory and, and neuroception, but also in general, it's such a powerful focus for us because it removes that judgment, right? Just as you were talking about earlier, so often we label things with judgment and shame And when we look at it through that different lens, we're not going there. We're taking a different, more helpful path. Exactly. And, you know, self-compassion isn't just, oh, be nice to yourself and, you know, excuse all of the things for your children, Mm -hmm. too. Self-compassion will prevent a flood of cortisol. And we know that if you're flooded with cortisol, you're going to have more of the thing you don't want, whether that's a behavior or a state of dysregulation in yourself. So, I mean, there's a a lot of science to back up why shame Mm -hmm. is not an efficient way to get from A to B. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about getting unstuck now. What sort of strategies and tools are there? I know there's a lot of different ways that we get stuck and our brains and our nervous systems are all different, but I bet there's some sort of common general strategies or ideas there. It really starts with the story that we're telling ourselves about whatever the state of stuck is, of whatever topic. If you can start by saying, and say this out loud to yourself, okay, I'm not crazy, this makes sense. I don't know why this makes sense, I don't know how this makes sense, but I just because I don't know why it makes sense doesn't mean that it doesn't. That's wordy, so you can shorten that Mm. to tell yourself this makes sense. Like somewhere, someone could decode this. I don't have time to decode it, but this makes sense. Because if we start with the assumption that there is a reason 
for everything, even if we don't know what it is, that's going to at least point us in the right direction. So step one, remind yourself, I have no idea why this is happening, but it makes sense. I'm not crazy because there's no such thing as crazy. Then step two, don't ask why, ask what are three choices available to me right now that can help me feel safer, a little less threatened, a little more resourced. Of those three, pick one and do it. And if the three are too big and too hard, make them smaller. We need to get to a choice point because trying to, you know, analyze our state of stuckness just creates, you know, the whole analysis paralysis thing. Mm -hmm. You know, in order to get from stuck to go, we need to make a choice. So instead of asking, why am I stuck? Just affirm that it makes sense and we'll figure out why later. And then step two, what are three choices? Not next week, not after I buy the day planner, not next year. What are three choices <laughs> right now mm-hmm. of those pick one and go? Because stuck turns into go the second you do anything. Like stuck becomes unstuck the minute you make any mm. choice of any size in any direction. Even if it's the wrong one. If it's a small choice and it's wrong, then you can course correct as you go. Yeah, that's so powerful. The idea of choice in here. And it's not necessarily something I've related to this, but I talk about it all the time with parents. Like, we have to give kids some sense of control. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, when there's no control, it's very dysregulating. If I don't know what's going to happen to me, I don't know when it's coming, I'm afraid of what might be coming, I'm completely dysregulated. And then I am not functioning optimally, right? So as a kid... And adults, too. This is true for adults, too. But in the conversation about parenting, we've got to find ways to give kids a sense of control. And that choice is typically how we do it, right? Because we also need to keep them safe Mm -hmm. and hold boundaries and all of these things. So by giving choices, we're sort of tackling both sides of that. Exactly. And giving kids choices, this is the whole like love and logic theory, takes the need for us to freak out and argue and get in the dirt scrapping off the table. It's okay, you can choose this Mm -hmm. or you can choose. When I did play therapy, I didn't have very many rules, but one was there are no hurts and, you know, we don't hurt ourselves or each other or the toys. And it's like, well, if you choose this, then you're choosing to end our session. And then it's, oh, Miss Bray, you're so mean. And I didn't need to get defensive <laughs> or mad. It's just, well, you know, like it's a bummer that we have to end session. And and then I could, and again, this is not as a parent, this is as a therapist, which is a whole different mm-hmm. ballgame, but the, mm-hmm. the concept's the same. It's if yeah. the child is making a choice, the parent doesn't have to be defensive and then the parent can stay connected and be that co-regulating resource for the child instead of it being a power struggle all the time. Yeah, yeah. And we get in so many power struggles. Oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, so many power struggles because I think it's partly societal, but I think it's partly also just our nature. And maybe it's our own fear and anxiety, actually, as I'm saying this, (laughs) to control our kids, right? To control what they're doing. We feel like we're supposed to be doing that. And so understanding that, number one, you have to throw that out that that's not what parenting is about. It's about helping guide this kiddo to whatever their destination is, not what our idea of where they should go. Then we're relinquishing a little bit of control ourselves to, I think, help not stay so stuck in the things that aren't coming to fruition. For our neurodivergent families, some of the things that we dreamed about parenthood or about what childhood would be like for our kids aren't necessarily reality or at least not at the same sort of stage of development. And so we can get really stuck 
in the fact that our kids aren't where the kids around them are, or we can, you know, relinquish the fact that we have no control over that and focus on what we can do, right? Which includes grieving. Yes. And I know so many parents who feel guilty for feeling sad that the childhood that they dreamed of is not an available option. Mm -hmm. And then it's, oh, I should be just grateful that, you know, that I have this and I have this. And, you know, well, at least I can. And all of the thousands of ways we minimize our reality. You know, perspective on access and resources and privilege is useful. Like, yes, it's great that you can have five specialists for X, Y, and Z. And, and here's the big and, you get to grieve the things that you were hoping for. You get to grieve mm-hmm. not just the things that happen, but you get to grieve the things that don't get to happen. And not only do you get to grieve, it's essential for nervous system regulation that if you're in pain, that you name it, own it, and let yourself have that experience. Because nothing is going to spin out an adult person or a child faster than trying to gaslight themselves out of how they feel. If you're grieving and you feel guilty for grieving, the guilt is not helpful, nor does it take away the grief. Now you just have a double dose to deal with. So let's go straight to the heart of the matter. You're allowed to grieve that this was not what you expected, that this was not what you planned. You're allowed to grieve that certain things are going to be harder for your child, for your family, for you as a parent. And we need to extend that kind of permission. Otherwise, you know, I see this behind closed doors every day. I don't work with children anymore. But when I work with parents, there's so much guilt and shame for having any feelings other than delighted, blissful, I love my child. Mm -hmm. And we need to give permission for all the feelings to exist. Yeah, something you just said really struck me and I want to talk more about it, which was talking ourselves out of how we feel. Mm -hmm. I have anxiety And I've struggled with it a lot over the years, especially as a teenager and young adult. And, you know, I think we try to say, okay, well, the anxiety isn't real. Like, I can't be anxious right now. I shouldn't be anxious right now. Or, you know, we try to will it away. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work. So what does work? And it's counterintuitive and people get mad at me when I say, you know, your anxiety is actually there to help you. I don't like it either. I've had chronic anxiety my entire life. I understand how debilitating and terrifying and uncomfortable Mm. it is. Nevertheless, metaphor alert, here we go. It's the smoke alarm of your brain. You know, anxiety is there to tell you that there is a problem. Now, when your smoke alarm is going off all day, every day, and there's not actually a fire... That's a problem. But the problem isn't that the smoke alarm is trying to hurt you or trying to cause chaos. It's that the smoke alarm is miswired and we need to fix it. Not that we need to fix ourselves, but you know what I mean? Like we Mm -hmm. need to rewire the smoke alarm so it only goes off when there's a fire. Often anxiety is our smoke alarm going off unnecessarily, but more often our smoke alarm is going off. We don't think it should be that big of a fire. So we try to pretend it's not there. And again, the fastest way to, you know, work our way through a symptom is to go straight forward into it. Right. Yeah. And then that would help to not be stuck there. It would also help dial down the intensity. Mm. Nothing will spin a panic episode faster than, oh, my God, I'm panicking about panicking. And now I'm panicking because I'm panicking. Right. But if you can stop and say, wow, I am experiencing a panic episode. I am experiencing a I've done this where I'm like in the fetal position rocking in my bathroom and I'm saying out loud to myself, this is a panic episode. I don't like this. This is bad. This is my brain trying to help me. I'm not being attacked okay, I need to figure out what's going to help me feel safe right now versus, oh my God, what's wrong with me? Stop panicking. Just stop. Take a deep breath. Do your box breathing. You know, all of those things are great, but 
Dr. Dan Siegel says, name it to tame it. So if you're experiencing something, and we don't always have time to work ourselves through anxiety. You know, sometimes you have to get up and go regardless of how you feel. But even then, saying to yourself as you're doing whatever needs to be done, okay, my body is perceiving danger. That makes sense. And then going back to number one, validate. It makes sense. Number two, what are three choices? And those little step one, step two hacks are appropriate no matter what you're experiencing to whatever degree you're able, because it only takes five seconds to say, this makes sense. What are my choices? Yeah. And this can be so helpful for parents. I'm just thinking about as you're talking, Mm -hmm. the fact that it's really easy for people who don't experience anxiety to minimize it. Oh my God, yes. They just don't get it. Mm -hmm. My husband does not experience anxiety. He just doesn't get it. And sometimes he thinks, you know, you're being irrational. You are, you know, (laughs) everything's fine. Just turn it off, basically. Mm -hmm. And we do that to our kids, too, when we don't get it, when we haven't been there. And so these two steps can really help parents, help kids work through some of the anxiety as well. And it doesn't mean that we're agreeing with the symptom. You know, I may not agree with why someone is having a meltdown. My husband doesn't experience the same types of things either, but I've <laughs> I've educated him. Hey, if you see me spinning, <laughs> you don't need to agree with why I'm spinning and you don't need to understand it, but you can va- validating a child doesn't mean you're co-signing on a bad behavior, a bad choice, mm. or somehow further instilling this as a belief system. You're just saying, hey, I see you, you're struggling. I don't agree with why you're struggling. I don't get why you're struggling, but I see you're struggling is going to work so much faster than stop struggling or why are you struggling? Yeah, and instead of the child or the adult for some of us (laughs) getting stuck on what's going wrong, Mm -hmm. that idea of saying, what are three things that I can do in this moment shifts that viewpoint, that perspective that we're trying to navigate the anxiety with. And we're not practiced. You know, when you get on airplanes, we all hear the spiel a hundred times and they know that they need to give us that spiel a hundred times because in case of an emergency, we all need to have that information ingrained in our heads. Yep. But we don't do fire drills for anxiety. Yep. And as adults, this was a play therapy technique, but it's useful for adults too, is like, let's practice resourcing when you're not on fire. Okay, yes. what are three places in the house that we can go if we're feeling red or if we're feeling icky, you know, whatever words you want to use. Ready, set, go. Turn on the song. Go to the snuggly blanket. Grab the whatever. But we don't practice these skills. And then we wonder why when things are emergencies, we can't remember what we're supposed to do. I love practicing it like a fire drill. Mm-hmm. I can, again, Anxiety such fire great drills. visuals. <laughs> yes. And I'm just like seeing us running around the house practicing that. And it's fun. And doing that is also regulating. Like it's inherently regulating to play games. And so having anxiety fire drills, besides being a good preventative measure for when it happens, is also just a naturally regulating activity. Yeah, yeah. And it does have to be ingrained to be able to call on it when you are spiraling. Because we know, again, the biology is that the more dysregulated we are, the less access to our thinking brain we really have. We're not able to rationalize, to sometimes process language, all of these things. And so understanding that helps us to know that, okay, I need to call on these skills first because I can't really think through this thing right now. I can't problem solve in that moment. Yes. 
And with neurodivergence, we need, an, again, an expanded vocabulary besides words. So maybe there's a favorite song that a kiddo has mm. that, you know, when they put it on, it always makes them feel regulated. It doesn't mean they have to feel happy. We're not trying to, again, we're not trying to take feelings and make yeah. them go away. Yeah. We're trying to take a dysregulated nervous system, create enough regulation so that feeling isn't flooding and creating a chaotic environment. So use music, use senses, use, you know, pillows, use whatever makes sense. You know, every parent knows the language of their child. Like when I was a kiddo, I had this weird thing where I carried pillowcases around 24 seven. <laughs> that was my stem. And that would have been my fire drill. You know, go get the pillowcase. And that's my thing. Like, that's not going to be in any textbook anywhere because that was my thing. But figure out what the things are. What are the things that create regulation? Yeah. What are the things that promote the conditions for a safer experience of an uncomfortable feeling? And practice. Yeah. Lots of practice mm -hmm. when things are calm. Yes. I think we're always sort of putting out fires. Mm -hmm. And especially before we learn how to navigate parenting with neurodivergent kids. We are more like in crisis mode and sure. we're just trying to get through the day, right? And this switch to being proactive can make all of that so much better. But it, sometimes it's really hard to find those moments of calm where you can teach skills, where you can practice what to do to help in all of those more elevated and intense situations. It's tough because life is busy and carving out the time to build these skills isn't an on, you know, it's not a crisis. What is it? The four quadrants. I think this was Stephen Covey's thing. Like we forget what's important in service of what's urgent and we have to consciously carve out time to do these important things so that mm. when the crisis hits, which it inevitably will. And that's yep. when it's for a parent. What are my three choices for cutting corners in a way that doesn't compromise my integrity? You know, like, do you have to have the perfectly home-cooked meal or can you do like DoorDash pizza and that's the night you practice the skills? Yeah. Oh, I love that. And really, we're talking five or 10 minutes, mm -hmm. right? You can do just little fire drills that aren't fire drills that are regulation drills. Right. We'll we're talking <laughs> like two to three minutes. These don't take very long. Yeah. Yeah. Just practicing in between two different activities or, you know, each night right after dinner or something. Like there's all kinds of ways to squeeze it in. And giving the kids the choices if they're able to say, well, what do you want? And I have a family I know where they have like a big box and the kids decorated the box and inside the box are the things that they want when things feel icky. And so they're practiced and, okay, let's go to the box, grab something out of the mm -hmm. box and they get to make the choice, which again is going to create more autonomy, a more sense of regulation. Like all the things we want are not pie in the sky conceptual. Like this is easy to do. Put a stuffy in a box, put a fidget spinner in a box or whatever the kid wants or bubbles or whatever, and then practice use. And it's so, it sounds so easy. Like just do this and everything will be great. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. I am saying there's some low-hanging fruit that we don't mm -hmm. get because we think it's stupid or silly or a waste of time, and it really isn't. Just because it's low-hanging fruit doesn't make it any less useful than the bigger things. And teaching kids to regulate, oh my gosh, it's so oh my gosh, right? part of all of life, right? Like, this is a foundational skill. That should be taught everywhere. Yeah. Yes, totally. Yeah. And it does help with a lot of other things. Yes. That's part of what we teach under the behavior revolution is that regulating is foundational. Mm -hmm. Like, teaching our kids about their 
feelings and emotions, what their bodies are telling them about their nervous system and how their brain works, that's foundational for everything that happens day to day, Yeah. right? And so doing these little drills is actually building and solidifying that foundation, I think. Which I wasn't taught how to do. I don't know if you were, but I certainly didn't have a behavior revolution or emotionally fluent parents or any of these things. And Mm -hmm. think about the transformative power of teaching this to kids when they're young. So they're not coming into therapy at 30, 40, 50, 60 going, what the hell is going on? Yeah. I didn't know I had a nervous system until I was like 30. Mm Mm-hmm. I didn't understand the autonomic nervous system until I was <laughs> mid-40s. It's only been a few years. Like, we so should be teaching this stuff in school. Yes. We should really be talking about feelings and emotions mm-hmm. and interoception and mm-hmm. the nervous system and the brain, all these things, because understanding them sort of unlocks this power within yeah. ourselves that helps us just navigate life yeah. and make more room for moments of joy. It's so, so important. I have a dream of a like an 11-year-old saying to their parent, like, I am feeling dysregulated right now. I need to get my coping skills box. Um, yes. Maybe not in quite so academic language, but just imagine a family that has this language available to them. Again, it doesn't excuse, you know, I can yes. also see a teenager being like, sorry, mom, I'm not turning in my homework because I'm stuck in a dorsal vagal shutdown state. It's like, <laughs> yeah, kid, no, that's that's what's going on, but that's not an excuse. But to have this information for families, for children, for parents of little humans, it really is transformative. It is. And I'm so thankful that you gave us a little bit of your time and a whole lot of your wisdom here for the listeners. And I've gotten so many great ideas about how to really help our kids to learn more about their bodies and the signals and helping them to be less stuck and ourselves to be Mm -hmm. less stuck because we matter too. As parents, you know, we're taught to sacrifice ourselves for the good of our kids and our families. We matter too. And taking care of ourselves actually is taking care of our kids. That's exactly right. So I just want to point that out too as we close. (laughs) To connect with Britt and to access the book, The Science of Stuck, and her website and social media and all these good things where you can learn more, go to the show notes for this episode, which are at parentingadhdandautism.com slash 204 for episode 204. Any last words for us, Brett, before we close? Oh, there's no such thing as crazy. Everything makes sense in context. Mm. They're, like you're not, if you're listening to this, I promise you, you are not crazy. Love that. Thank you. We need that reminder. (laughs) (laughs) I do, often. Yes, yes, so often. Well, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. And I will see everyone on the next episode. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me on the Beautifully Complex podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses and parent coaching at parentingadhdandautism.com and at thebehaviorrevolution.com.